You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Well, Bracken, you owe me $204. Oh, no, you bought Alpha Flies. <laughs> Damn you, Bracken. You sent me a link last week. Uh, and, you know, I couldn't just let it sit in my inbox. I had to do something with it, and that was click buy. So I've joined the club. You will not regret it. I have had never in my life more people tagging me in the same type of post which is hey i albin convinced me or you convinced me that argument about the alter g got me i just ordered super shoes <laughs> yep on the way and i can see you you know i've been staring at them in behind you on your shoe wall for mm-hmm. what seems to be years so it's only about time yeah, and and I never would I never felt comfortable when people would take like just got vaporflies. I'm excited to run my 5k. I never felt totally comfortable with being associated with somebody buying race speed. Because one of the now I love triathlon and I love cycling. I like doing both. I've competed in both and I enjoy watching it. I I would say almost half of what I watch training-wise is triathlon because they're long. And they're interesting mm-hmm. the entire time. They do a great job with coverage, and it just gets me through hours. But the the thing I do not like about it is that you can buy speed. So I've never been totally comfortable with being involved with that. But as soon as that made that zero to one turn in my mind of this is non-impact cardio, this is alter G work here, then suddenly I was totally comfortable. With, yeah, go out there and try it. You can rationalize anything. That's what it comes down to. Yeah, although I still, I will die on this rock that if you have PRs set in non-super shoes, you have to asterisk your PRs with super shoes. And I do not know if I will ever race in super shoes less than a half marathon distance until regular racing flats are extinct. Where do you draw the line with what is a super shoe, though? Like, it gets blurry now. It does. It's a personal thing. For me, it's a shoe that I can feel makes me better, makes me faster. Mm-hmm. Without any difference in fitness. Where if I wear this shoe versus another shoe and I'm faster without more effort. There are shoes that you're faster in, like track spikes versus track flats, but it costs you. You put on track spikes and you're faster, but they wear your legs down. It is not just a a net gain. There are drawbacks to it. I put on alpha flies and I am faster for free with no drawbacks. I can do it for longer. It is just enhancing me. So that that's where I consider it a super shoe. Faster for free. I like that. That should be like the, that should be like the tagline really of like the alpha. Not exactly free though, is it? <laughs> but no, it sure isn't, but severely discounted, which I'll take. Um, all right, we're going to jump into an episode today, but I want to know what your thoughts are on uh, the Utah North American Series race. I know not every one of our listeners 
is an OCR athlete or even a fan of the sport. I know a lot of people probably cringe every time we start talking about obstacle course racing. However, Utah was a race that any race fan could enjoy. The running was fast. The descents were were pretty quick to watch. The uphills, you could tell people were working and the, the races were close. If you remove Emma Cook-Clark from the equation, and this isn't a spoiler alert, Emma won by 13 minutes. You're going to realize that 60 seconds into the first climb that <laughs> the women's race is over. The races were fantastic. And I don't want to give away the result other that Emma is on another planet, but the races kept you engaged the whole time. If you're not a fan of OCR, I don't care. Add that to your treadmill list. It's just an awesome race. Mm-hmm. And I think I like, I mean, obviously we were commentating the live coverage, so we're going to be a little bit biased. But if you're anything like me or you, we grind away on cross-train, uh, cross-training sessions each week instead of running. And having like a two-and-a-half, three-hour live stream, mm-hmm. like you start getting star for content after you spend enough time like power hiking on the treadmill or on the assault bike. Yeah. So I like the drawn-out aspect of just being kept company of the live stream. I mean, we did, you know, for our first crack at it in a while, we did have technical issues, which was a little frustrating. But as far as like a, what was it, a three-second delay that uh, caused us to keep talking over each other. But um, for the most part, first crack with a new crew, a new system out on the mountain. Yeah, of course, coverage isn't perfect and it gets pixelated and jumps. But like first crack, not that bad. Not that bad. No, and, we, and we're not the tech crew. We're the hired no, help in the booth. Sure are. My only, I mean, it was disappointing to miss the first five minutes of the race. It was disappointing that there are some glitches in audio, but my biggest regret is that Robert Killian rolled his ankle because we missed out on some of the women's coverage because of that. And that's not a, that's, that's not on him. The mountain, everyone rolled their ankle. I had three mm-hmm. athletes out there. Two of them rolled their ankle. I had a bunch roll their ankles as well. It happened all over. Rose Wetzel rolled her ankle. Killian rolled his ankle. Chris Roglowski, she rolled her ankle. Who else? Who knows who else rolled their ankle? It was, it was not the same course as years past. It was a nasty, gritty, kind of rough and tumble course. Yeah, it was. I do believe that uh, sort of a cleaned up version of of that live feed will be be put out, including the part of the race that was missed. Um, I think there was some connectivity issues, but it sounds like that'll be out here. There was a, there were some comments about you know like. You know, it's like you have two sides of the the camp, right? It's like, I would rather just have a perfect product that's a half an hour long, released three weeks late, than have like a, a botched product in quotes that releases right away in the live feed. Um, you're never going to win, right? Like when you're, you're never going to please everybody. But um, the comments about, um, you know, they'd rather have like a clean version or like take the time and editing and then release it. Like you can still get that from this product. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, but but people more griped about not having the live feed available to them in the moment. And then the, the results were spoiled because we already knew them. So what's the point of watching this cleaned up product that's released two, two or three weeks later. But again, that can still be dissected cleanly out of the live feed. So um, anything you saw that was like uh, less than stellar is mostly due to connectivity. The content is there to use still. So anyway, so it's like you can still do both if you want. Yeah. And really the live feed is for people who are so invested in the in wanting to see it live that you'll put up with anything. Not that you should have to, but me personally trying to scroll through Athlinks and refresh, and that doesn't even exist for Spartan anymore, I'd watch a choppy, blurry feed just to have an idea of who won rather than having to scroll through Twitter and Instagram to find things. So 
yeah, we're yeah. we're biased, but my my takeaway it was a battle out there, and people are mm-hmm. good. Yeah, truthfully, and yeah, there was um. What do you think? I, I mean, you looked at like the results one through ten on both the men's and women's side, and it was like a good mix of. And I said this in the commentary, but it was like a good mix of new blood and old dogs. It's just like we got like a really nice like meshing of the two on both sides right now, which just means more battles to come, longevity in sport, new talent, um, the old talent still sticking around really. So I don't know. I just like the mix we have right now. It feels very polarizing on the age front, Mm -hmm. but that's like a good thing. I think that's a really good thing for a sport. Yeah, I think it speaks speaks to the health of a sport. You don't want a mm-hmm. new wave of like seven or eight people to come in and go one through eight the whole time because it means the previous generation wasn't good. They mm-hmm. were just a product of they didn't have anyone else to compete against. So when you see the old dogs, in quotes, compete with the new guys who are also good, it validates both sides. And it means that, yeah, the future of the sport is bright. So it was, it was fun for me to – I went back and rewatched afterwards to see what the technical issues looked like and what our – performance look like how we can improve for hopefully a next one and i think as a race fan i could deal with watching that yeah me too me and jess watched it last night um shall we get into what we're talking about today yes we should all right why don't you fill us in we go in seasons on this podcast with our listeners it seems and we are currently in knowledge seeking season and new listener Mm. season and i i i find it strange how it happens like that but right now we we got this maybe a year ago and six months ago where we start getting a slew of questions that are all the same which is something like hey i'm diving back through all the old episodes and i'm trying to formulate my own training or i've been working on my own and i'm getting stuck here or some of these interviews have really got me thinking and i've been re-looking at my training or hey i'm a new listener here and i'm trying to play catch up that's the season we're in right now people are reanalyzing what they're doing and trying to make sense of it all and we want to make sense of it all in one episode (laughs) is that possible no but we're gonna give like moses on the mountain 10 commandments type thing where if you don't know anything else Listen to this episode, and it's going to give you a starting point, and we are going to reference old episodes to go listen to, and then round out your experience a little bit. Because we all get lost in the weeds from time to time. You learn, you learn, you learn, and it almost muddies the water. So we just want to clear the water a little bit. Yeah, bring things back to center, so to speak, for people, the the principles that we stand by. And if you've been a long-time listener... Um, just consider it a refresher. Mm-hmm. It's easy to get lost constantly. And I think our opinions have changed over the course of even starting this podcast two and a half years ago. So just yeah. bringing you up to date on the foundations of what we believe and sort of highlighting conversations we've had in the past on this podcast to get there. So you um, you came up with a little bit of list, Brack, and we don't often prepare for this thing perfectly, but here you are just coming through. You might be confusing the word perfectly with at all. Same thing, really. We do joke that we don't prepare or script anything on this. And it's true and it isn't. Mm -hmm. Like Our preparation comes from spending the last decade reading everything we can find, conversing with athletes on a daily basis, testing our own stuff out, and then thinking on runs. So we might have a, a question on the spot that we haven't prepared for. But at the same time, we've probably spent 20 hours thinking and researching that one topic over the last three or four years anyway. So no, we don't, we don't script out our episodes at all, but the preparation's there. 
Well, it made me feel, I don't know if you guys had uh, listened to the Mike Stefano episode that came out on Friday. Um, talk about preparing. That man comes prepared. Made me feel like I was a little underprepared for a lot of the stuff we do. But good thing we have each other, Bracken. There's your list. Well, I've got my notes app up right oh my here. Goodness. And I have six rules that I have learned or brought into this. And we've learned from the guests, learned from you, learned from me. I feel like if we could distill everything we've talked about down to six main ideas about your training, that we mm. can all be pretty successful. Mike Stefano would be proud. I started a Mike Stefano file. What does it say? What's in Number there? Number one, use a VPN. I think he's tracking me. <laughs> he's got to interview you. He had some great questions in there. I hope you, you hop on his podcast here soon. Now I want to know his about yours. His what? I don't think he had a list on my mind because we interviewed not too long ago. I would think he does. Nah, he, he used up his list. It's, it's back to clean slate. All right, why don't we start? So we're building a plan. We have a race in the future. We don't know if we have a race in the future. We used to do something else. We're confused. What should we work on? Rule number one is when in doubt, build your engine bigger. You can never build your engine too big, and you should never get rid of building your engine in order to work on skill work. Skill work can be added into engine building, but you must always, always be thinking about your engine. When in doubt, build your engine. So what does that mean, Bracken? Does that mean just go out and put in junk miles? Does that mean threshold work till you're blue in the face? Does that mean, like, what do we mean by when in doubt, build your engine? What I mean by that is that you want to look back and see a thread connecting all of your training that trends upwards. What you don't want to see is, I did a 5K block here, and then I did a mile training block here, and then I did an OCR half marathon training block here, and here I just worked on climbing, and here I just worked on foot speed, but there were no links in that chain. They're just scattered. Building your engine means always making sure that you are going longer, faster, steeper, higher, something with your training. And it can be incremental in nature, but you're always working on improving your aerobic engine. Now, working on anaerobic is great and fine, but it has to have it underneath there. So we could probably get into analogies with this so that I start stop talking and just mumble jumbo coach talk. Should we do that? Sure. All right. Braden, my nine-year-old son, has gotten... He's got real into auto racing and vehicles in general. So we just went to a NASCAR event last weekend, which count that as things that I never thought I'd have on my resume. <laughs> We've been playing Gran Turismo, Need for Speed, all that stuff on video games. And there's a common theme here, which is that it doesn't matter what you do to your car if your engine doesn't get bigger. Like you can reduce the weight on your car. That's great. But if at some point you're not adding horsepower to the engine, you're not going to be able to handle the next class up of races. Like there are just limiters. If you don't have at least 300 horsepower, you're not going to get to the finish line in this one with the group. You need 500 for that next step up. You're going to need 700 to race on, on the track, that kind of thing. That's what you need to be doing. It's not just about throwing on a supercharger. It's not th just throwing on racing slicks. It's not making your, your torsion and your, your roll bar and all of that. It's not just changing all those things. You actually have to build your engine bigger to compete with the faster cars. 
And all those other things are the things we get lost in the weeds on. Which tires do I have on? How is my transmission working? Do I have a supercharger versus, a, versus having a, a turbocharger? But at the end of the day, you just might need an engine overhaul. Go from stage one to stage two engine, stage two to stage three. That's what you need to be focused on big picture mm-hmm. on your your race car, so to speak. I like that one. It's been a while since we've gotten an analogy from you. I think we're going to have a lot of them today. Yeah, we might. I, I would equate it to, we always say make those bank deposits, right? Um, we're sort of saving up for something. And it's mm-hmm. like, even if we don't know what we're saving up for, you still got to save, right? Even if you yeah. don't, like when in doubt, like you're still going to put money into your bank account. And that means like foundational run work. If you don't yes. have your next big goal or you don't even know what's next on the calendar, things seem way far out. Go back to fundamentals, put in aerobic work, stick to your threshold work. If you're going to, you don't need to do these intervals with all sorts of recovery or anything. Just go back to the basics. Mm -hmm. Time on feet equals money in the bank that you can spend on something when you choose later, when you get more specific. So it's another way to look at that. Yeah. And and following up on that and following up on the car analogy, someone might argue, well, if you just build a bigger and bigger and bigger engine, well, you need better brakes and you need a better suspension system and you, you're going to need all these other things to be able to handle that engine. Well, the difference between a car and a human is that as you build engine in, in a human body, your brakes improve. Your tendons, your ligaments, your muscles are constantly getting worked at the same rate that your heart is and your lungs are. So you are actually strengthening your chassis. You're working on your ground contact, your, work, your ground contact points. So instead of having to buy new tires, your tires just evolve with your engine. So if you go back to the basics, which is just, let's raise my volume a little bit. Let's do some more staying power workouts, aerobic threshold work, lactate threshold work, long runs. You're actually strengthening your car as you go. It's not like you're choosing one or the other. As long as you're working on your engine, you're strengthening your car. And it's important to remember that then when you want to add in the supercharger or some nitrous later on, you have a system that can handle it rather than just, I'm going to spray a ton of nitrous into this little beater here and it's going to explode. Yeah, I think when you say working your engine, um, that could be misunderstood for going out there and working hard. Like, let's just go out there and work really hard for a long time, all the time Mm -hmm. and build my engine up. Right. No, that we want to work that engine in like it's fuel economy sort of stage, which is like go out there and just kind of, you know, feather the gas and just go. Right. Yeah. Like we don't need to overwork right now. Like, again, if you're if you're lost or misguided or even restarting a build, like working your engine doesn't mean going out there and breathe heavy for two hours every day. It just means like put your running shoes on, go out there and go even run conversational pace. Go do like we're, we're actually not talking about like. Um, putting the hammer down or, or, you know, burning matches, so to speak. All we're talking about is like, get some time in and then you're going to set yourself up for when you do make a decision at some point to tackle something specific, you have the foundation to withdraw from. And Mm so I just don't want, I just don't want those to get confused. Like when you say build an engine, if people think of revving the RPMs, right? Probably like, let's get this baby. Not really actually like cruise at like 1500 RPMs and just go. Well, and how many guests have we talked to that they got better when they just did a little bit more of the non-sexy stuff? They just added in more mountain runs. They started doing long runs. Maybe they added in back-to-back long runs. Danny Moreno, we asked why 
What's giving you the most confidence in this last training block heading into uh, Marathon du Mont Blanc? which is the biggest race of her life so far. And she felt she was capable of making a podium. And spoiler alert, she made a podium. She didn't mm-hmm. mention a single quality day. She said, I've been doing back-to-back long runs and extending my long run, and I just feel bulletproof. Mm-hmm. That's very telling. I had a uh, an athlete of mine, Cardi uh, Davis. Uh, shout out, Cardi. She podiumed in Palmerton this weekend. And that was, uh, that's a huge step for her, but it was just two weeks ago. And she posted this meme that, uh, was about groundhog's day. And if you, the, the movie, and if you know anything about that movie, you know, he wakes up and he repeats the same day, like over and over and mm-hmm. over again. And she was making a joke about the fact that I just have her going out and putting in non-sexy time in the mountains, like go run hills, go run hills, go run hills. Every day was her groundhog day when it came to training. And she liked to joke about the monotony of it. And then she goes out and hits her first, you know, age group podium in a race that's way out of her comfort zone. And it's all because she just had Groundhog Day every day. She just mm-hmm. showed up, put her shoes on, went out, did the same damn thing. Practically, of course, we're doing hard work and all that. But it just outlines that exact same thing. And it eventually pays off. Very recently, John Albin's interview, we talked about how he went and just leveled up. He just won the Marathon du Mont Blanc against probably five of the 10 best mountain runners in the world. What key workouts did he point to in that interview? And we talked about everything he did. You know what he was most excited about? He's added in more gray zone training, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. aerobic threshold training, pushing a little bit harder on some of his easy days. Now, there, there are pros and cons to that, but that's not sexy work. That is engine building work. Aerobic threshold, that's engine building. That is not 5K race pace. It's not 10K. It's not even half marathon or marathon race pace. It's slower than marathon pace most of the time. And that's what he said was a big needle mover for him. Now, he did mention one workout. He mentioned a hill workout that Killian gave him to work on climbing speed specifically for that race. And you know mm-hmm. when he started doing that? like six weeks out from his race, (laughs) he he saved that. He got better because he went back to the garage and worked on his engine. Yeah, exactly. But it's, uh, we've actually, um, referred or referenced this theme a number of times amongst all the great athletes we've spoken about, uh, especially when they've broken through, um, to like that upper, that next echelon of, of racing. And they've never been like, yeah, well, I just like you know, kept hitting these 400 meter repeats, or I just, I discovered the sexy workout with mile ladder. Da, da, da. They're like, no, I just like, it's just been like consistent for a while. Like I've just been like showing up and been able to do it for like a year or two straight without getting injured. And yeah. I'm just like, I'm not doing, I'm not reinventing any wheel. I'm just continuing to show up. And that's exactly what it's about. So I don't think what we're, we're describing is earth shattering, no. but I think people start reaching for straws when they start to feel lost with their training. They're like, I don't know what I have on the horizon. I don't know where my fitness is even necessarily at, or I'm restarting a build and they just want to slap in some sharp stingy stuff because they don't know any different without any real purpose or reasoning behind it. And I think what we're just trying to tell you to do is slow down, just slow down. Like, you're going to be putting money in the bank. You're going to be able to make a decision when it feels right. And in the meantime, just save. And that yeah. means putting on your running shoes and going. There are many, many, many things that I believe or preach or utilize that I am open to debate on. This isn't one of them. 
I will open this up for debate when anyone can find me an example of a finish line interview of any endurance type racing where they say, tell me why did this go so well today or what happened in training or how did you manage to pull this off? Find me one example of someone saying, oh, I hit this hero workout. There's this one workout that just changed my life. I crushed this interval session and and it, it, it just changed my life. If you can find an example of that, someone giving the race credit to a sexy workout, then I will start opening this up for debate. But until that happens, I'm not going to. Somebody's going to find that. That's going to be the problem. <laughs> and it can't be like somebody who won the local Muddy Dog Dash <laughs> in Nowheresville in the middle of Wisconsin back up here with us. It can't be that. It has to be a legitimate high-level racer. All right. I like it. Should we move to the next uh Yeah. Box. Yeah, it's going to sound like we're totally backtracking, but we're not. And this is, you can never, ever, ever fully lose touch with fast running. You can never, (laughs) ever fully let your fast running go. You must have at least a touch of speed always, or you're going to not be able to use your full engine. Well, that's confusing. Isn't it? It sure is, Bracken. Wow. Why don't you keep keep going here? Help help uh, unmuddy the waters that you just created based on what we had just previously talked about. Well, let's look at you, me, VJ Jones. Uh, who else did we talk to about this? We've, we've had several people recently who they attributed some of their lack of success to forgetting about the fundamentals of speed. Well, you could reference Danny, uh, Danny Moreno in the sense that um, yes, Bracken, my dad is climbing up on a ladder on the side of our house right now. And he's about to start hammering on the side of our house. He doesn't know I'm recording. <laughs> so I'm going to take 10 seconds here and I'm going to, I'll leave the mic live. Yeah. Leave the mic live. Why don't we? good yeah we couldn't really pick up the audio very well i was hoping it would be some sort of dramatic conversation but no he feels terrible lisa was out there she said i just told him oh (laughs) spring into action what was he going to be hammering on we have a very old house 1917 i believe it was built and we have all wooden windows we have a brick home with wooden windows Um, the casing the frame everything is is wood Mm -hmm. so they are in dire need of a refreshing. So we could either spend like 20 grand and have all new vinyl windows put in, or we could one by one, uh, rehab and refresh all 49 windows on our home. Oh my 49 windows. Yeah. Holy, you have, those older homes have a bunch of small windows, don't they? Just yeah. these little windows everywhere. These, yeah. What are they like? Maybe 15 inches wide to 20 inches wide by two feet tall, that sort of stature. Yeah. And we're technically a three story home. Um, Our third floor is unfinished. It's a giant attic, but it could be a third floor. So we have at least two and a half floors of windows that wrap around the entire home, Mm. plus basement windows. So, yeah, there's a lot of small ones. And there's I think there's like 15 big ones and then a bunch of uh, maybe 25 big ones and a bunch of small ones. But he's uh, working on them on our second floor deck right now. And this recording room connects to the deck. Oh, nice. 
Um, well, you were asking about uh, keeping speed in the equation. You referred to me, you, VJ Jones, and I was going to say Danny Moreno. Yeah. Um, in the sense where even though she's running what they call sub ultra trail races, I mean she just ran Mount Blanc, which is a marathon trail race. Uh, she was still doing really short intervals, mm-hmm. and proof was sort of in the pudding there. Even though you're racing for four plus hours, she's doing like one, two, three minute intervals at times. Yes. So I would say that qualifies. Yeah. Matt Carpenter is, is a famed American runner who lived in Colorado Springs. He was the, for a long time, the holder of the Pikes Peak Marathon ascent descent record, the incline in Manitou Springs. He held all that stuff. And he was famous for doing massive volume, but always doing like 10 to 15 by 400 every week, 12 by 400 to maintain that ability to turn the legs over. Joe Gray, who I think is the best sub-ultra trail runner in the world. I think, uh, I would say sub-marathon trail runner in the world right now. He trains with the world-class athletic um, team out of Colorado Springs, which is a bunch of Olympians and Olympic hopefuls from 1,500 meters up to 10K. He does speed sessions with them weekly. These Mm -hmm. people are... Always following rule one, which is always never forget to always remember to stop forgetting about growing your engine. They're always growing the engine, but they have purposeful speed work year round because they understand that the faster and smoother you can work at your top end, the easier submaximal work is and the more economical you are. You, If you can use all your muscle fibers efficiently, at lesser speeds, you just use way less exertion to do the same amount of work. They know that, that the efficiency that they have there is invaluable and they never get sluggish. They never have their cadence start to drop on the trails. Like a lot of us see happen, you take to the trails and your cadence drops. This is all that type of work that stops those negative trends that can be associated with engine building. Always never forget that you should forget about not forgetting about speed work and don't forget yeah. to build your engine while never forgetting about your speed. Always remember to never forget that. All right. Clear as day there. Got it. But I think you bring up good points there. So we, <laughs> we, uh, I don't even know what I said there, but, um, put money in the bank, but not like this needs to be a big focus of your programming we're just talking about the speed sprinkles that Bracken sometimes brings up. Mm-hmm. We're not saying build a build a uh, plan around two hard interval works e- workouts each week that have top end speed in them. We're just saying like maybe go for your you know sixty minute aerobic run and then finish with four by four hundred meters just to turn them over. We're not really building any sort of fitness with that, but we're also keeping those biomechanical pathways open strides at the end of a run, maybe short interval sessions, but sometimes even a lot of rest, maybe once a week, maybe once every 10 days. We're not talking about it being the basis of your program. We're just talking about not losing touch with that. Yeah. Meaning sprinkle it in. Yeah. In college, when I ran middle distance, 800 meters, 1500 meters and Kirk, you did the same thing as well. Focusing Mm -hmm. mainly on 1500 meters. In the fall, in the winter, when we were not doing speed work, we'd finish at least three runs per week with 100, 150 meter strides. Accelerations where you build up from a jog to pretty much as fast as you can run without switching to sprint form. And we would finish our tempo runs off with 4 by 200 
that was the extent of it. So four times a week we were touching speed, none of which were a workout. And that was for people who were trying to run two to four minutes as fast as humanly possible. Could you cut that in half for someone trying to run two to four hours? Yeah, very easily. You could probably cut it down to just one time per week. Spin some 200s after a tempo run, after a long run, after an easy run. Or as a standalone mm. warm-up to an easy run. But just making sure that you can work at your fastest gear so that your lower gears are easier. No, yeah. I like it. Do we need to dive into any more layers with that or do we just leave them somewhat confused? But I think we got our point across. Know that you don't build the plan around these strides or 200s or 400s. You add them in where you can so that you don't compromise anything else in your plan. Basically, do your foundational run work, right? Do your non-sexy work and then find once or twice a week where you can just tack this on. As in like whatever you're doing, it might not take you more than 10 total minutes from start to finish. You're doing really quick things that aren't taking a lot of time that uh, you're basically in this phase, like sort of slapping on the end of a workout, or if you do make it a standalone workout, it's a pretty short, you know, workout. We're not looking to go to the well here. We're just looking to get up to pace, get working quick, and then basically shutting it down before we're actually accumulating any fatigue. That's really what we're talking about here. Not like these change your fitness workouts, more just like let's keep the, uh, the knife blade a little bit sharp in case we need to use it. Yeah. Yeah. You look at it as skill work, not as intense work so let, let's just yeah. leave them with three examples let's give your favorite example maybe my favorite example and then we'll use vj jones's example yep you can start i'll start all right so yep. mine's gonna be a two-part example i love to add in 200s once per week just like three to six it can be at the end of a threshold run it can be at the end of an easy run it can be at the end of a long run you could even add it in beforehand. I generally don't with that kind of work. I just like to, if I've done a run that maybe had the ability to degrade my stride a little bit, like a really technical trail run, I'm just going to roll some 200s a little bit. And that is just run 200 pretty fast, running your best stride that you have. Not sprinting, but just your fast, good stride. And then I just walk 200. I do that three to six times and I'm done. So that is probably mm -hmm. my most common speed sprinkle, So I would say. The other one is, in the middle of runs, do some 15-second pickups. You have a 60, 90, 180-minute run in the middle of it, somewhere in the middle. From time to time, pick it up. We used to call them, uh, what were they, telephone poles? Yep. You go for a run, let's say a 90-minute long run in high school or college, and in the middle, you just pick one telephone pole on a country road, and you accelerate fast to the next one. And then you just coast back down and resume your easy run. It just reminds your body how to pick the pace up and run with a good, clean form. And it ends up cleaning up the form on your the rest of your run, too. Yeah, I like both those. Um, the two simple ones I do, and I've been doing this one a lot more lately, is just like the last 10 minutes of a recovery run, I'm doing 30 seconds on, 90 seconds off. So, I mean, 90 seconds off is a ton. I'm just basically getting in four to six 30-second pickups my recovery runs typically feel pretty sluggish if I'm in a good training pattern, as yours should. And on my recovery run, you know, it's funny is once I'm like, oh, the last thing I want to do is pick it up for 30 seconds right now. It ends up popping my legs a little bit. And by the time I get a couple of them in, I'm like, I feel way better now. So yeah. just 30 second pickup. And I get there, like, let's say around 5K pace. Like I'm looking at, you know, let's say for me around five minute pace, nothing crazy, 
just enough to be getting that like efficient stride going. And then I shut it right down for 90 seconds at recovery jog effort. Sure. Your heart rate data is going to, your metrics are going to go up just a little bit in that last mile. We talk about, you know, keeping in recovery effort. It's a really efficient way to just keep the turnover going 30 seconds on 90. You can make whatever you want, but you want a lot of rest and a little amount of work there. That's the idea. You don't want to be doing like 30, 30 at the end. You just want to give your body time to get up to speed and then really let that heart rate come back down. So that. And then very traditional, it's just six to eight by 15 second pickups Mm -hmm. with 30 seconds walk recovery in between tacked on to the end of a recovery run. Um, And when we say pickups, that means I'm not going right into an all out sprint right away. I'm starting to open up my stride. It opens up, opens up, opens up. I'm running faster, 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 faster. And then right when I almost hit peak, not even, I shut it right back down. So it's not like I'm all out for 15 seconds or these 30 seconds. I'm just slowly ramping up, ratcheting up, hitting top end speed almost and then shutting it right back down, but never really sprinting. Yes. So that's those are my versions. And then we'll finish up with VJ Jones. Now, VJ, I know you listen from time to time. If I butcher this, forgive me. It was a long time ago, and we talked about so many good things in your episode, but he would do what he mm-hmm. referred to, and I love this term, mechanical threshold. This is not a blood value. This is the fastest you can run before your form changes. So basically, if you picture yourself, here's how I like to describe it to someone. You're running any sort of endurance race and you get close to the finish and there's someone right next to you. Let's say you're a quarter mile away from the finish and they start picking the pace up and you match them and you guys are going back and forth, ramping it up, ramping it up, ramping it up and you get closer and closer and closer and you're running as fast as you can run and eventually you get to the point where you take off, you switch to your sprint form and you you just hammer all the way in. Right before that, that point where I've run as fast as I can run now until I have to switch to kicking it in and sprinting, that's your mechanical threshold. The most speed you can get out of your normal perfect stride before you have to switch to pumping your arms and really, really sprinting. So mechanical threshold. He would do intervals just like one, two, sometimes three at mechanical threshold. Let's say for him that was 420 per mile pace. He's got a crazy treadmill, so he could set it to 420, and he would run at that pace, holding his perfect stride until before he had to stop. He would stop when he feels like, oh, I'm going to have to start fighting to maintain this form, or my form's going to break. And he'd Mm -hmm. stop. He'd rest a long time, like five or six minutes, and do another one. And then he'd stop, take another five to six minute rest, and then he'd do his normal workout. Whether it was an easy run, whether it was threshold intervals, regular intervals, but he practiced his mechanical threshold form a few times every single week. And what's great about that and what we're outlining is you're taking on practically no damage. None. All you're doing is working pathways. So it's not like it's something where you're not going to be able to sit on the toilet the next day. Your calves are going to be beat up on you. You're not going to be able to train the next day. It actually is the opposite of that. We're not looking to take any damage here. What we're doing is just looking to open up pathways and keep efficiency, uh, keep the muscles, the brain, the brain body connection firing mm-hmm. properly, keeping it sharp. So that that's sort of the main main idea there. So like lots of rest. We don't often actually advocate for that. Like when we're in like a threshold phase or we're trying to build fitness, that's not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to build fitness, believe it or not. We're trying to no. keep pathways open. Correct. All right. Should we move on? We shall. All right. This one is really logical sometimes controversial and really easy to forget but that is volume is volume we talk all the time about volume all it means is the duration of what your work is you could talk about the volume of one single workout 
or for the week. I did a 50-mile week or I did eight hours of cardio. Most people, normal people, meaning I I live the stereotypical life. I have responsibilities. I don't run full-time for a living. Those people run into time constraints or health constraints with running volume. I just can't run anymore because I don't have time for it or my body can't handle it. But it doesn't change the fact that your body is governed by the same rules as professional runners, which is that more volume generally helps build your engine. And what we're here to say is training volume doesn't need to only be running volume. Your body doesn't at the at the core like chemical level inside of you does not care whether you're running, biking, hiking, rowing, skiing, assault bike. Heart pumping is heart pumping. Oxygen pumping is oxygen pumping. Could not agree more because I've built a career off of that sort of philosophy, Brack. And mm-hmm. right now I'm running four days a week, yet I feel like I have really good fitness. And that's because uh, I'm filling the gaps with uh, non-impact cardio. And exactly as you mentioned, our heart and lungs don't know the difference, what's causing that duress. All it knows is it needs to perform, right, to provide our body with what it needs. Of course, um, low impact or non-impact cross-training doesn't necessarily Uh, build up your resistance to impact. And there's other things we can talk about with mechanical efficiency, like we just talked about, like runners need to run to run well at some point, right? Mm -hmm. However, did we not just have a great interview with Hunter McIntyre, which I was only there for part of it. And he's saying, yeah, I'm spending, you know, I got to train 10 to 12 hours a week, but I can only run six of them. But I know it's so important that I get that volume and that I need to bike the rest of them. And that's what the difference for him was from getting his butt handed to him in the North American champs to going and then being the world champ not terribly long later. What did he do? He didn't really run anymore. He just layered in biking and some other specific work. So proof is in the pudding there that like other non-impact or non-running forms uh, of cardio absolutely will improve your fitness as long as running, of course, is in the mix in some capacity. So Hunter's a shining example of that. As he mentioned, he, uh, he just wasn't doing the extra bits and the extra bits for him was more cardio and the cardio didn't come in the form of running came in the form of biking. Exactly. So many times I do an onboarding call with an athlete and I say, tell me what you can currently handle because I need to know what you're currently doing. I need to know your last six weeks of training, six months if possible. I need to know what you've shown to be able to handle run volume and workout volume wise. And so often the run volume and the workout volume are the same. I can only train four days per week. I cannot run more than 35 miles or I start to get hurt. So I've always struggled to race longer. And there is no, so then I blank. There is none some of the time. And this happens, I wouldn't even say some of the time. The majority of the time we get limited by what our run volume can be. But then what if you added in another three hours a week of cycling? or power hiking. Mm-hmm. What would what would happen to your engine? Well, it wouldn't get worse. What would happen to your your heart and your lungs? Well, they wouldn't get worse. They would get stronger. If you keep running your 4 days per week, are you going to forget how to run efficiently because you've started cycling and rowing more? No, you're still hitting the ground. If you're still doing speed sprinkles, you're still efficient with speed. If you're still doing your quality runs and long runs, you can handle the impact. You've just added more engine building. John Albin, what did he talk about, Kirk, in this thing when I said, now what's been, how did you get back from surgery to world-class mountain running? What did he say he did all winter? Treadmill ran in ski mode. Ski. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. He skied a ton. He said, I've never skied this much and with purpose. He started doing hill repeats on skis. Maximum vert. On our running public training plan on Training Peaks, we have two runs called Hunting Vert. We have a midweek long run and a long run called Hunting Vert. John Albin hunted vert on skis, came back, and now he's a top 10 mountain runner in the world. This works for people. Killian Jornet is famous for not running a step in the winter. He just plays in the mountain on his skis. And I think like this principle of volume is volume becomes more and more helpful the further away you get from the track and the roads. Mm-hmm. You know, biomechanical efficiency, I know I'm throwing that out a lot, which just basically means your body is firing efficiently at faster paces. Um, becomes very important on the track, becomes very important if you're a road racing athlete, like just being as efficient as possible. Well, yes, being efficient as as possible is important as a trail racer, as an obstacle course racer, but like it gets diluted significantly when the terrain gets worse and worse. But what also happens is that the power of cross training becomes more and more uh, purposeful the gnarlier, gnarlier your race conditions get. And we have a lot of trail athletes. We have a lot of people racing mountains that listen. We have OCR athletes. And this cross-training absolutely translate because it all boils us down to our engine when it's all said and done. You get two hours into a mountain race and you're stripped down to whatever your engine has. And that means like if you move the needle one or 2% by layering in biking on top of your running, that will come out at the end of a long mountain race or a long obstacle course race, and maybe even on the roads. But point being, like, if you look at top-end people in our sport, as Bracken has mentioned, go look at, I just combed through, like, a Ryan Atkin Strava. He's biking 150, 200 miles a week and running 30. Mm-hmm. Ryland Shattig, who does, you know, all these people are just junkies for non-impact volume or lower impact volume they're doing so many so much adventuring that isn't running that's still translating to what they do because they race such gnarly terrain so go put in that non-impact cardio go put in that cross training it will translate it does you see the top in our sport shining examples of that yeah and one fatal flaw in the endurance community is that we look to the longest established endurance sports for our training protocols. And those would be cycling and running. Now you could argue swimming is just as long established, but there's just not as easy access to world-class training and there's no impact there. And cycling falls under the auspices of less impact there because you're not impacting the ground. But Mm -hmm. so for the most part, if you're a running-based sport, cross-country, track, trail, roads, mountain, ultras, swim run, triathlon, you look to what the world's best run coaches and athletes do, and those all exist on the track and on the roads. But there is one critical flaw in that thinking, and it took me probably a decade of coaching. If I go back to my very first coaching job at the high school level, It was probably near a decade before I finally started to break free from my blinders, which is the general purpose, the overarching purpose, really, of track and road running is to never break your stride, your rhythm, and to always stay as impossibly efficient as possible. The goal is to be so, so good at your one thing that you never stray from it. And the overarching goal of all the other types, cross-country, mountains, ultras, trails, I would even say triathlon, is to be able to leave from that perfection and come back to it. 
and get knocked off of it and come back to it and break your stride and come back to it. And that's where the great divide happens, which is not everything that is done on the track and the road is best practice for us. And we forget that, that the physiological purposes that are absolutely right for them are not always for us. And so cross-training helps them less than us because every single other muscle they recruit can actually be antagonistic to their 10K time and to their 10K stride because they're never changing and they don't need to recruit it. I would argue once you hit the marathon distance, you need different forms of cross-training because you have to be able to recruit everything under the sun for those last six miles. And on the trails, cross-country, anything like that, the more different venues you have of recruiting muscle fibers and different forms of your stride you have, the better you're going to be. And I know that was very long, that explanation, but it took me a long time to grasp it. And I want everyone to grasp it now without the pain of 10 years of failing. You need to cross train more the farther you get from the track. Yep. Yeah, that was a good add on to what I had mentioned. And I would just say moral of the story is you want to get better. You just don't know if your body can handle more run volume. The answer is simple. Do a double, you know, get your run done in the morning and then hop on the bike in the evening when you get home from work. If you're really Mm -hmm. feeling dedicated, you like scratching your head. Like, how do I break through right now? Like I'm doing everything my body will tolerate right now. Like I can't train more because I'll get hurt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can actually train more. Yeah. Get on the bike, go swim in the pool, go do something like that. So point being like, if you're one of those really ambitious athletes, I'm not saying it's necessary to break through, but I am telling you that like layering in extra volume, um, laying that foundation, kind of our point number one of today will help you get better. Um, and that doesn't mean going in there and, and, you know, digging yourself into the dirt on these sessions. It just means go out and work aerobically. That's fine too, especially if you're adding it in. That's where I want you to start with this stuff. Don't go on the bike and hammer. Don't get on the rower and hammer. Just go and put time on, check your heart rate, stay in your aerobic zone and go like, listen to a podcast. Fine. That's it. That's That's perfect. I have a list on my phone of always have some sort of. That is the title of this list. Just a a reminder. It's like a, a North Star for me in training as I'm coming back from these surgeries. Reminder of what I need to be doing. Okay. And this one says volume. Seven plus hours per week, no matter what, in any form. So when I deload, I am deload running. If I'm at seven hours a week of cardio and I deload to five hours, I'm now going to hike an extra two hours and bike. Yep. Point being that when I blow up on a workout, let's say I have three by 20 minute tempo and I make it two by 20. Instead of my training log saying two by 20 blew up, walked home. Now it says blew up, walked home last 20 minute on the bike. Mm-hmm. You still can hit your volume with no chance for injury if you stick to your intensity protocols. So we can probably move on from this, but it's so, so yep. important because it's a game changer. Kirk, if you were a four day a week runner and that was it, you would not be the athlete you are right now. Not a chance. And you are so successful because of your cross training. I would say moderately successful, but um, when you start looking at like how much I'm running and f- what I'm doing with that, it's because of it's because of what I'm layering in on top of it, in addition to my running, for sure. You're very humble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of us has to be. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> All right. Speaking of volume, or I guess speaking of intensity, speaking of engine building overriding rule of training you must recover 
Go. I've been having this conversation with uh, with a number of my athletes lately, this recovery conversation, because we're to the middle of the season. People have been training hard, and you're going to start seeing and work out some of these. Like You're going to lay eggs. You're going to be like, I was so tired today. My workout was so slow. The heat, this, that. Like I was more fit two months ago. No, you're actually wrong. You're just less recovered right now than you were two months ago because of all the hard training. You had a bad workout. You think it's because you're losing fitness right now? Are you an idiot? No, you're working hard. How on earth are you possibly losing fitness right now with how hard you're working? You're under-recovered right now. Your shitty workout has nothing to do with you losing fitness if you've been working hard and consistently. Your shitty workout has everything to do with you being under-recovered, not out of shape. And I've had that literally had to say this exact same thing to about four or five of my athletes right now who are kind of hitting those uh, mid-season doldrums of like, I'm tired. Like they think, then all of them think, how am I out of shape right now? No, you're not. You're far from out of shape. You're in fantastic shape. You just don't have a platform to stand on because we haven't been getting enough sleep. We've been training hard. And for some reason, you like to have a social life on top of your training. Let's like reassess here and try to try to get back to center. And the one piece is recovery. I want That's a one soapbox I've been standing on lately. So I, I'm really glad that you, you brought that up, Brack. Could not agree more. I like the passion, Kirk. Ah! I, the fire in your eyes. Well, it, it comes in every form. It can come from... I need two weeks down in the middle of the season, even though I have fall looming with championship season or my big fall marathon or my local fall 10K that I want to PR. It might come in the form of a two-week deload. It might come in the form of you need an extra day of recovery in between your big workouts. It might come in the form of you got to stop hitting your boot camp and your your circuit classes in between, even though they're great for you. You got to stop going to those because you're not recovering from your interval session, or you need to find a way to restructure your running week around those boot camps and circuit classes, you know, at Orange Theory or at your CrossFit box. I don't care what it is. They either have to fit your schedule or your schedule has to fit theirs, but you can't have like 10 different recovery cycles going on. It doesn't work that way. So finding out where am I under recovering is just as important as figuring out how are my interval days being progressed here? Because they're not progressing if you're not recovering from them enough to absorb them. I could not agree more. In fact, as we're just talking about this, I don't want to get into it all because of time. Okay. Um, but I'm almost thinking next Tuesday, we just do an episode of, you know, you're not out of shape. You're just under recovered. And I mm. think we need to dive into that a little bit more. But you, I mean, uh, right now it just seems to be ringing true because people are racing themselves to death. They're training hard and they're yeah. starting to just get tired. And so maybe we need to dive into that. If there's an interest, let us know. But um feeling very passionate about that. You know, I had a good example of that, Brack, and I, I raced my solo 50K in May, which is basically me going out and doing a time trial. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I took nine days off. I think I did a couple. I did three cross-training sessions in there um, on my assault bike, didn't run for nine days, and then went on a tear for two weeks of just, like, running, popping good workouts. Like, And then in week three, I crashed. Right. Week three, I was like, I laid an egg in this workout. I felt terrible here. It's like, well, how could like how could I possibly be in worse shape after just murdering two weeks of training in a great way after following nine days off? I can't logic will tell me that I was not more out of shape in week three back to running than I was in week one back to running. Yet I was performing better in week one and two than I was in week three. What did it have to do with Bracken? Had everything to do with recovery. I finally was recovered after a break and my body could go out and do what it did. Then I beat it up, didn't recover enough, and paid the price for it later. Was I out of shape? Nope. 
I was just under recovered. And I just experienced all that recently too. So it's just like very enlightening for me to, to time and time again, see how good I run after I just relax. Yeah. So mm-hmm, it's interesting. Last example we'll do here, unless you have some just like absolutely spectacular examples and analogies that we can go to. But I read an article this morning about Galen Rupp. He is the greatest American distance runner of all time, I would say. And he is struggling in recent history. He's been dropping out of races. He's had surgery. He's had lingering issues. And this article is about his preparation for world championships that is coming up very shortly here in Eugene, Oregon. And he's running the marathon. And he talked about how he's still showing up to go for the win. He knows it's going to be a tall order. He said training's been wild. Um, and I've just had so many things pop up and the, the interviewer asked him about what that looked like and what that meant. And he said, don't, don't get it wrong. I haven't missed any sessions. I've just had to add in extra days in between. And to hear this guy who is, uh, an Olympic medalist in two different events, talk about that. He said, no, I've, I've still hit all my sessions, but I have to take extra days days in between this 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 time i'm getting older i have things lingering he was famous for years 120 mile week 120 mile week 120 mile week on the dot always 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 and now he's doing what he has to do to get his training in and that requires extra recovery welcome to your mid-30s galen yeah it was enlightening to see because he was a metronome for so many years but he is having to adapt but he is not caving on getting his work done he is extending the amount of time it takes to absorb the work yep i love it so i don't want to rush the next few points here but we're going to rush the next few points here let's make them quick yep all right so we have two left here kirk and we might even be able to combine them but train to the test yes and then the 120 percent rule and i think they go together they do go together very very well what are you actually preparing for and are you truly preparing for that that is the question that you should always be asking yourself and we can thank dr fred clear for this we can thank john albin talking about why he's doing more moderate training we can talk to vj jones we can talk to so many of our athlete examples and i'm just naming the recent ones we've done other than fred mm-hmm. clary but that man echoes through eternity with what he's been talking about but are you training to the test or for something else. Yeah. So what does that mean? Train to the test, right? Um, that's a tough one to answer sometimes, but it, it really actually isn't. It's almost as clear as it gets. And that means like, of course, um, of course you went out and you raced your marathon and you blew up at mile 16 and had a rough last 10 miles. Did you do threshold work and marathon pacing? You did, didn't you? Okay. Did you, uh, properly fuel during the marathon well you think you did right well then why did it go wrong well how long did you practice threshold pace and did you do it in 85 degree conditions and did you do it knowing that you were having almost 100 feet of gain and loss per mile on a Mm -hmm. hilly marathon course you combine it all and sure you did your threshold work on flat terrain and sure you practice fueling on your long runs but did you practice fueling when your heart rate was at 175 And did you do that in combination on a hilly threshold run? Well, no, dang it. I really, I really didn't do anything like the course demanded. And, and you, you did all these little pieces, but you forgot to like put it at the right temperature to cook it just right. Make Mm -hmm. the recipe turn out how that cookie should, right? 
you did you had all the ingredients but you missed all those fine details and then you end up with like this this botched project in the end which really you thought you did everything right but you didn't you didn't teach to the test meaning like what is the race going to demand really think that through and then execute those those things in training and a lot of people scratch their heads when they have a race go poorly you really think about it did you actually train to the test and the yes. answer is usually no in those situations yeah we see it with uphills and downhills so often I don't get it. I was doing 18,000 feet of vert per week. I still blew up on the climbs. Wow, that is a lot of vert. How are you getting that vert? I did a ton of Nordic track incline trainer work, just like you guys recommend. All right. What was your downhill mm-hmm. work like? Well, downhills kind of hurt my knees, so I stayed away from them. Like, well, that's it. Your downhills blew up your uphills. That's simple. But then you get the athlete who says, that was me, so I bought a pair of Hoka's like you recommend for getting used to downhills. And I got some big downhill sessions in my Hoka's. That's good. How many big sessions did you do in your race shoes? Oh, none. I didn't want to get beat up. What happened to your legs on race day? I got beat up. Okay, so you didn't fully (laughs) train to the test, but you were one step closer. And then you get the final stage, which is, I did, I listened to what you guys said. I did my race shoe hill workouts. They're fantastic. They're so much easier to climb in. Then I went and did a long downhill session in my race shoes and it was phenomenal. It trashed me and I still blew up on race day. My climbing was still bad. It's like, oh geez, that's tough. So you were climbing up and descending in the same session? Like, oh no, I isolated them so I could track my workouts. Well, well, then that's why. That's the final piece. The race is going to require you to climb after descending and descend after climbing multiple times. You have to at least sim that twice in your training leading up to that or your legs aren't going to be able to handle it. So there's that continuum where I get closer and closer to the actual demands of the race. But if you miss one, it will not let it slide. It's exactly correct. And we could probably give 100 examples, right? You could yes. go very down the rabbit hole of OCR being like, what's it like to run fast after carrying a sandbag up a double black diamond? Well, it's hard to run fast after that, right? Um, but the point is, is like really dissecting what your race is going to demand, mm-hmm. like being a true student of it. Yes, you need to isolate pieces. We're not like foo-fooing, like doing just hill repeats. Yes, do hill repeats. Or yes, just focus on the downhills some days. Like that all, of course, we need to have all those single ingredients in there. But once in a while, you got to put the recipe together and make the actual product before you go out on stage and have to do it in, you know, when it matters. And so that's what we're outlining today Yeah, with that it, point. And this is a really generic, bland way. But let's say you could only get to the mountains on Saturdays. Maybe week one, you do big uphill focus, week two, downhill, week three, uphill, week four, combo. That way you're isolating the variables and you're combining them. And then you repeat that again. Now that's about as simple as it would get, but it would probably work. Well, it's like, how do you source the best uh, tasting food or recipe, right? You source the best, freshest, most all natural ingredients in the purest form, which could be, I'm going to do pure uphill work. I'm going to do pure downhill work. I'm going to do pure threshold work. I'm just going to carry my sandbag. But then once in a while, you got to put all those ingredients into a recipe, take the purest forms of those. So still work them. And then, you know, like you said, every four weeks or three weeks, whatever it is, mash them all together in one real big effort. Mm-hmm. And then go back and focus focus on the isolated pieces again, mash them together. But uh, becoming a student of your race coming up is very important in regards to that. And 120% rule. Yep. That kind of rounds off this prepare for the test. If we look back at Utah this weekend, 
it was very clear that some people were fading towards the end and some were closing. And more often than not, the closiers, the closiers, closiers, the closers were the ones who have history with very long races, with very big volume, or both. Mm-hmm. And that is because they are used to the demands of something more than what they were asked to do. Now, you could argue that some of that's just pacing. Some people blew up because they didn't pace it well enough. And I would probably argue back, how do you think you learn pacing for a two-hour event? Pace for a one-hour event, pace for a three-hour event, pace for a five-hour event, pace for a two-hour event. And after you've done all those things, you probably can nail pacing for anything. But you have to know where your upper limits lie and then race below that. Yeah, 120% rule can get confusing. It can. Um, to be honest. And it can come in v- different versions. Um, okay, how, what we're saying is basically put your body under a stressor that is going to be worse than what you're going to see in a race, more demanding than what you're going to see in a race. A form of that could be climbing up and down your local mountain way harder and faster than you ever would in a race because in a race you have to go up and down that mountain twice. Well, we're yes. going to go do it in training, 120% of race effort and pace, knowing that I don't have to duplicate this twice because it's not race day. I'm only going up and down once versus twice. So then when you get to race day and you go out at let's call race 100%, it feels somewhat controlled and relaxed because your body has gone out there and, and worked harder in training at times than it needs to in a race. And so you're not going 120% of the race distance in this case, but you're going 120% of the race effort, we will call it. And this is all in theory, guys. We don't need to split hairs in what the actual percentages are. We nope. don't, we're not Jack Bauer over here. And then it could also mean if you have a three-hour race you're preparing for, well, maybe you go out and do a four-hour long run. Because 120% rule, well, if I know what it feels like to be on feet for four hours, I certainly can handle three, right? It's I've gone longer. And then you combine those two, right? You go, I'm going to go a little further in training than I need to go on race day. And also at times, I'm going to go a little harder in training, perspectively, than I need to on race day. So that you can put those pieces together, 120% rule, I've gone harder in multiple capacities, intensity and duration. And then when I come to the race, I'm actually prepared to feel somewhat comfortable for a long, for a while, which allows you to race your best. I guess I, I don't know how else to summarize that, but that's yeah. the best way of putting a bow tie on it. Go longer and easier or shorter and faster. And those are real easy ways to do it. Let's say you're pre- preparing for high rocks. The only way to get high rocks level trashed on the sled is go really, really heavy in training. If your sled's 350, go 500. Mm-hmm. Now, there are ways to do this. The one thing you do not want to do is go 120% rule for duration for ultra distances. Well, correct. If you're if you're preparing for a marathon, don't go do a 33-mile tempo run. Some people can handle that. There's a cutoff. But yeah, the risk-reward's not good. If you have a six-hour mountain race, you don't need to go run eight hours to get a feel for it. If you can handle that, you can. There are people who do that, but the vast majority of world champions don't. Mm-hmm. So there is a cutoff the longer the race it gets, the more it is about overloading the intensity at shorter durations rather than extending duration. But again, yep. if volume is volume, can you go do a three-hour long run followed by a three-hour bike to work on fueling and high heart rate? Yeah, you can. So be prepared for more than what's going to be asked of you. That is the final premise. Yeah, just to add a little clarity there, um, in the sense we're referring to Dr. Fred Clary, which we have multiple times through recent episodes. Um, I've been seeing him regularly. He's my chiropractor, so I've, he's top of mind. Fred Clary is, but 
For example, if he wanted to squat a thousand pounds, right? He's a big, strong man. Um, he may put 1200 pounds on his back and do a quarter squat just so his system gets used to a sort of load like that. 1200 pounds and he's only going part of, part of the way down. That's a waste of time. Well, is it because his nervous system is now understanding how to respond to that sort of load. So when he eventually attempts a thousand pounds for a full squat, it's not shock to the system nearly as much as it could have been because he's been stimulating in that regard. And so using like that sort of principle is where the foundation of this conversation started with, yes. you know, not going through the full range of what your race is going to demand, but giving you portions of it at a higher intensity level um, than what's going to be required of you on race day, competition day. That's a perfect example. Yeah. As anyone who's ever tried to max out a lift knows, there's no worse feeling than than getting the bar onto your body or unracking it and never having felt anything heavier than what you're doing there. Yep. Because not only is it the heaviest thing you've ever put on your back or locked out above your chest, but every range of motion you go down, it's still the heaviest you've ever felt there and you don't even know if you can move it. You don't even know if you yeah. can get out of the hole at the bottom of the squat and then you're bracing, you're shying away and you're not attacking because what's, what's new for us is always frightening. Whereas if you've done your squat pulses at a, at a thousand pounds, putting 800 on your back is a comfortable feeling. Cause you know, Oh, I felt heavier than this. And you're going to drop to the bottom and explode out. Same thing happens for racing. Yep. You can't go out and PR your mile and feel confident doing it if you haven't run faster than mile pace. You can't go out and say, I can crush a marathon if you don't know you can run marathon pace for at least 16 to 20 miles. So those are the things you have to figure out. Yep. Could not agree more. We always think we're going to do this. Like I was like, we got a hard cap on it at an hour on this oh, today. You know, I might have to go to see clients unshowered, Brack. And I ran 15 miles before this. I wondered why your workout took so long. Well, and you see, I got all these empty water bottles because I've just dehydrated as crap. But now I don't know if I'm going to have time to shower. That's what I sacrificed for the people who's running public to get this episode out here. It's terrible, Bracken. It's terrible. Well, easy things you can do. Go back through episodes that we talked about today to get more clarity on some of these things. But if you follow these principles, you will stay grounded in your training. And the worst thing you can do in training is flit off to the right and then flit off to the left and be disjointed. Follow these. You'll at least always be on track. Yes, you will. All right, we're done. <laughs> Just like that, <laughs> we're out folks. of here. <laughs> Bye. And this episode of The Running Public is brought to you by us and The Running Public Training Plan. This running plan has everything we ever talk about on any Training Tuesday, all compiled into one all-encompassing training plan. Now, it's an OCR-specific training plan, but 95% of this is just running. So it doesn't matter if you're training for an OCR or a marathon or whatever. It all is in there. Speed work, threshold, hill work, up, down, long run, long qualities, and plenty of compromised running. Everything we talk about is just waiting for you. That's right. The hardest part about creating your own training schedule is deciding what to do the next day or that day. We take care of that for you, which I think is worth the uh, $19.99 a month in itself. It's cheap, right? And you can cancel at any time. If you've been curious about it or you don't know how to put together all the knowledge we share on the podcast into your own training plan, it's a no-brainer. Where can people go find this uh, this training plan and get signed up, Bragging? On our beautiful website, therunningpublic.com, $19.99 a month. Cancel anytime you want. That's right, you can. In fact, 
I think you, you're an idiot if you don't do it. So go sign up. <laughs> <laughs>